Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. So welcome to this week's episode of the Mr. Beacon podcast. Uh, I am very pleased to have two members from the Wiser Systems team, Elaine Rideout, CEO, co-founder, thanks for joining us, and uh, Logan Maxwell, and uh, you're a director at the company, Logan, uh, translating between uh, technology and uh, and plain and common English is kind of how I interpret what you do. Uh, so thank you both for joining us. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Appreciate it. Well, um... So we're going to be talking about ultra-wideband, um, uh, really an update on, uh, we, we've had some podcasts where we talked about it in the handset, so it's definitely getting a lot more visibility. I'm sure you're enjoying that. Uh, we'll talk about ultra-wideband, uh, what's changed, uh, and what you're doing with it, which, uh, you know, last time I looked at ultra-wideband really closely was uh, with... Uh, my friend and colleague John Moransky from NGK and you, what you guys were doing, this was a few years ago, and it seemed to me that either ultra-wideband was super expensive, but really cool, uh, or it was, there was like some very interesting things on the horizon and you were the guys that were doing some of that work, but it was just a little early. And now we're a few years on and uh, so I'm really looking forward to hearing the latest from you about where the technology's at, um, where, where it's resonating, where the use cases are, and helping us pause uh, a bit about uh, you know, what some of these technical acronyms mean. But before we do that, um, maybe, um, Elaine, we should start with you. And can you explain a bit about who Wiser Systems are? Where, where are you based? Are you, you're on the East Coast, are you? Yes, we are. We're in Raleigh, North Carolina. All right. Downtown. And, uh, you know, what's, what are things like in Raleigh at the moment? I, I, this is the first time I've been back into the office for months. And I, I, I did it because I wanted better audio, audio quality, less dogs and teenagers in the background. So um, <laughs> are you, is everyone still working from home with you guys? How, how, how are you doing? 
Yeah, we're we're all pretty much still working from home. Um, Logan is currently in the office, however, and um, so we still are, you know, serving our customers just as we always have. Uh, when we have to do demonstrations of our network, the, our building is network, and so we do that from the office and you know one person at a time kind of thing. But yeah, we're still our governor still has us in uh, phase one, I believe. And, yeah. and are you um, are your customers allowing you on site at the moment or not? No. Yeah. No, for the most part, no. Um, our defense customers are, uh, but most of the commercial is kind of um, site by site basis, and most are not. Okay. Well, we should probably center this and go back to uh, what does Wiser Systems do, Elaine? Can you introduce us to the company? Absolutely. So, so we are in the business of being able to do micro-location. So we work in environments where GPS and other location systems typically don't work really well. Um, so we can, we can locate within a few inches and track, you know, basically, and Logan will explain the, the technology a little better, but we, we're like GPS, except we work indoors, but we have, instead of little satellites, that we placed around your building, um, you know, we have little small antennas. And so we can just mesh out a space. And then anything that has our little tag on it, I have a tag, okay. I can show you. So anything that has a little tag on it, um, yeah, you know, right where it is, usually, you know, within something like this. We work really well around metal. So around metal, it might be something more like this. Uh -huh. <laughs> But, um, but we work where the Bluetooth systems and you know typically don't work really well. They give you area accuracy. A lot of systems are pretty much homing devices, how close you to the nearest beacon. We are more um, like GPS. We give you the latitude, the longitude, and the Z axis as well. Yeah, that's, that's great. X, Y, and Z. And the receivers, what do they look like, the things that are used to locate those tags? Do you have, uh, do you have one that you can show us? Uh. I actually right. do. Fantastic. And see, it's, it's, it's very small. Tiny. And, um, yeah, you place these up on, on walls. Yeah. Um, and you can hang them or you can set them on a, you know, on a table. I can, I can do that right now. And, so, yeah. And that's, it looks like you've got a USB connector on that. Uh, so it's uh, typically how, so you have... How many of those would I need in order to get X, Y, and Z in a, in a, in a uh, kind of a boutique store, if I'm uh, like a sunglasses store or something like that? How many of those uh, uh, do I need to get down to that? Logan, <laughs> well, I've been in I've been in some of those stores. Um, yeah. So our system, because it's kind of like a GPS, it uses triangulation to find the tags. Right. And so in any given store, you'll need a minimum of three. To start getting a z-axis, you'll need a minimum of four. We usually recommend putting one in each corner. It is non-line-of-sight triangulation, which is helpful to differentiate, right? So in a typical maybe sunglasses boutique, there might be times where the tag is behind something or around something. That's okay. You can still just have four in the corner of that given space. If there's a larger space, say your office is a great example, where there's some glass walls and other things behind you, it might be that you still only need four depending on that wall construction and thickness. That non-line-of-sight 
thing that you mentioned. I'm sure no accident because, you know, I think your closest competitor is the Bluetooth angle of arrival, um, which was kind of a lot better than the signal strength based stuff that's just really kind of very zone level accuracy, as you said, uh, Elaine. Right. But yeah. how is it that with your ultra Im implementation of ultra wideband, you don't need the line of sight, which you typically do need with, uh, in my experience, you do need it with angle of arrival. Why, do, why don't you need it? Right. So there's, there's two reasons. Um, one is that we're using kind of a redundant radio location technology. We like to call that RRLT, where we're taking multiple measurements, right? And so we're not relying on a single source of information in that case. But the second and more important aspect of that is that we have algorithms that are trimming and very intelligent in the sense of being able to read very low signal-to-noise ratios through walls and through obstructions and still count that as true signal. Okay. So there's, we're just very well attuned to reading a poor signal. And the way that uh, tri triangulation is being done is not, your, your readers are not giving you an angle. Unlike angle of arrival, you're, you're, you're not getting, oh, this is, we think this is at uh, three degrees. What are you getting back? What are, what are you seeing? You're, you're getting an ID, but what's the information that allows you to do that triangulation? It's all time-based information. Okay. So, and what's what's the acronym that you would use to uh, to, to uh, capture that? So, so we use a combination of a few, but mainly it's TOF and TDOA are the main ones. And what do they stand for? So that's time difference of arrival and time of flight. Okay. And so we you... don't use space differentiation or any of that. So. And so, how, how does that work? How do you what what does that mean, and how how does that work? Right. Because so, essentially what it's doing is giving you a distance, isn't it? It gives you, right. if you can measure the time that is being taken, you have the distance and then you're essentially drawing intersecting circles and that's kind of gives you where the thing is. But, uh, I, I, you know, where is the timing being measured? Is it being measured on the tag? Is it being measured on a server? Is it, just give us the next level. Yes, so the, the time is being measured both on the tag and the antenna. The system is configurable so that you can operate it where the timing is just configured on the antenna. And basically, the, we can run it any which way we want, uh, but it can be configured so it's either way. And you got it just right. Essentially, using we are assuming that signal travels at a constant rate of time, time equals distance. Our algorithms are just very intelligent in being able to tell the difference of what is a true signal versus a reflected signal versus an attenuated signal through an obstacle barrier wall, that sort of thing. Okay, so the fact that there's some plasterboard in the way or a bit of wood, uh, then the signal may get through that. It's going to be attenuated, it's going to reduce, but the timing's not going to change much. It's like... Uh... Yeah, it, it, there's a little wiggle room there, exactly, but the timing won't change much. Okay, so as long as the signal gets through, you're good. And, and what sort of bands are you broadcasting these signals at? Because that's one of the other things that impacts the, how these things work. The frequencies, uh, what do you use? Yes, so we can operate on a few different channels. In the U.S., we typically operate in channel 4 ultra-wideband. So it's a 900, megawatt, 900 megahertz wideband centered at around um, 4 gigs. And 
in channel five, it's actually a 500 megahertz wide band centered around 6.25 gigs. Okay. Uh, and so the significance of that is this is a lower band than Bluetooth, which is, uh, you know, a couple of, whatever, three or four times, uh, well, three times higher at 2.4. Um, uh, and so you have better propagation. Uh, you're, you're, you're able to, you have a better chance of getting through the signal because you're not going like that. You're kind of going like that through the things. Is That's my take on it. Now, the time... You know, ultra wideband's been around for a long time. There's a bunch of ultra wideband systems installed at uh, uh, BMW, and you know, if you're making a car that costs 100,000 bucks, then you can afford a lot of infrastructure and big chunky tags. That tag looked pretty small that you were holding, uh, Elaine. Um, so I, I'm interested in, you know, what are the approximate costs of this? I don't, you don't need to give me a quote, but just order of magnitude, how can you unscare us about the incredible cost of, because uh, typically, you know, the tags were expensive, the readers were expensive, the infrastructure, you know, getting the infrastructure in was super expensive, and because the volumes were small, then, you know, just the services were expensive as well. What, what, what are we talking about in terms of economics these days with this? Our total cost of operating is really the lowest in the business. Um, in volume, our tags cost about the same as the BLE uh, Bluetooth, but when you include the installation, you don't need electricians. I mean, this whole thing is extremely lightweight. Um, it, even, even as a computer program, it's lightweight. Um, when you include the maintenance, the upgrades, lifetime, the fact that we can scale um, up to any size, you know, any millions of square feet, any tens of thousands of tags. Um, it actually is the highest value at the lowest cost. And part of that is because um, our solution, the, the battery life is programmable. Your battery could last up to 10 years. Our tags are reusable also, and they can last however long. Um, you can replace the batteries. And you know, just if you're done having one asset tag for this tag, use the same tag for something else. So when you look at the whole thing, we're actually very, very competitive with everything else out there, and we're actually more accurate. We think we provide, and we're portable, so you can actually take the whole thing down and move to a new location if you need to, uh, or move it around if you rearrange your factory. So there, there's a whole lot of pluses there on the cost side. So. Yeah, and ROI is uh, it's not it's not it's not based on one price point. Of course, you uh, you know if you want more accuracy with a Bluetooth solution, then you end up having to have more locators. So I, I'm I'm going to kind of posit some things. You can challenge them. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of Bluetooth chips being sold out there, and I think you get what, where do you get your chips from? Who makes ultra wideband chips? So we make our own tags. Right, uh, but, but you don't make your own chips. No, no. and I'll let Logan uh, respond. Yeah. Yeah, so currently we are a DecoWave customer. Okay. Um, and as you know, they were acquired. Uh, they're still producing the chips, but uh, yeah, we use the DW1000. So I I'm assuming that that chip is probably more expensive than a typical Bluetooth chip, but I think the... The counter argument to that is, well, if you really need a accuracy and uh, you are going to have to be uh, 
you know, the cost of the reader is probably just a, a small component of that. If I have to have 10 readers to get the accuracy that I could get with four readers from, uh, from an ultra-wideband solution, then, 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 you know, the economics become something that uh, just, you, you can't just compare the cost of a tag versus a tag, a reader versus a reader. Right. It's, it's more of a consulting exercise to add that, uh, add that up. But I do remember, you know, it used to be that the cost was massive for those readers and the infrastructure. What is it that changed that reduced the price? Did DecaWave just cut the, the, the price or, or what, what changed? No. Um, so we've been able to create a very inexpensive, flexible reader that doesn't include a lot of other components or logic. Um, so we're still having to purchase the DecaWave chip. The DecaWave chip is still, unfortunately, a large component of the bomb yeah. uh, of both of our tag and our antenna. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can get competitive at, at high volumes with yeah. our tags, uh, but it does take high volumes to get there. Yeah. So with the readers, what we've done um, is tried to make them very, very, very simple. So they really are just kind of collecting information and then sending it down to the next reader. And we've made it so they can wirelessly communicate and share information so they don't have to be wired up and synchronized in all of these complex ways. Oh. So in order to, if you eliminate that wire synchronization, if you eliminate that part of it, That's then the you're, able to, yeah, you're able to create a lot cheaper reader. And so we can put up a cheaper, a more inexpensive reader um, around the space, have less of them that in essence do more. Yeah, and I think that was one of the, so when we were looking at sort of the, the guys that have been around doing ultra-wideband for a long time, they were talking about laying coax, sort of a dedicated coaxial network between the readers, and that was like, oh my God, this is going to be a nightmare. But, but clearly, but with that wireless communication between the readers, you're able to reduce that, uh, reduce that cost. Right. What are the boundaries, Elaine, uh, maybe you can speak to this. What are the boundaries of the solution that you make? Are you making kind of a full stack solution or uh, you, you have the, the tags, you have the readers, and there's presumably some software that gives you the, where the, the, the dots are that correspond to these tags. Do you go much above that or what, what's the software aspect of what you do? So yeah, so we have a very, as uh, as Logan said, it's it's very lean. So what we try to do is we try to offer the basics that everyone can use. What we don't do is we don't specialize our solution for, you know, tracking cats in your house, you know, specifically. Yeah. Or you know, we actually have a customer tracking rats in the lab. You know, um, tracking horses on a on a on a track. We have some really cool things happening with our tech. So we want to be that. We want to be that that base, and then have those customized solutions built on top of ours. So um, so really, what what we did is I spent a lot of time just early on going out into the market and trying to find out. What does the market really want that the market's not getting? And so we limit our offering to that. And it turns out that the industry and manufacturers are very leery of cloud offerings. Um, what's, what's going on in the factory floor is some of their most valuable IP. And unlike many of our competitors, we give them the ability to create all their zones, create their rules, and import 
their our data, their data, data because we don't own it directly into their in-house ERPs. So we let them use their existing dashboards. Um, no clouds if they don't want it. It's all on-prem if that's what they want. And we don't own or even access their data. And so we work a couple of different ways. Some of our customers actually want the dashboard that we have many, many partners who offer that that fit their industry. So we bring that partner in. Other partners are just, or our other customers they're usually very, very large multinational corporations. They're like, we have SAP. We just want to get your stuff into our SAP. That's all we want, and we work directly with them. Okay. I'll let, again, also address this this topic because it's been a fascinating thing to see what they really want, and we try to radically address what they really want. Okay, but I hear, I'm here, I hear you. It's, it's horizontal. It can be on-premise. Uh, it's uh, kind of primarily API-based for integration with these big uh, manufacturing execution systems, uh, supply chain systems, and uh, so forth. What, what, what are the main, um, what are you seeing, Logan, as far as the, the main systems that you end up integrating with? What, what are you plumbed into most? Yeah, so um, it's, as Elaine said, it's a kind of a mix of we're either going into a partner system that's aggregating all sorts of different sensor data, also tying into an ERP or WMS or something else, or we're going direct into a client's platform. So in those cases, there's typically an asset management barcoding system or warehouse management system already running, and it already has barcode scanning in place. And so if we provide our tag with a barcode on it, uh -huh. uh, basically that tag can be scanned in and into that system. And since we're providing our coordinate data, very precise precision coordinate data, we can just update that legacy information, right? So they have a legacy barcoding system that's already in place. Instead of scanning an asset every time it moves to a new table, Wiser reads that it's moving and has moved to the new table, and we send all that information to that database. So we actually typically are just linking to databases, and then that legacy system is pulling from that database. Does that help answer your question? It does, yeah. I want to go back uh, and, and uh, drill down into this battery life thing, because again, that's another area that historically ultra-wideband systems have been kind of weak on. You've need some, in some cases, I remember seeing this presentation from this uh, very different ultra-wideband company, and we're like, oh, this is just amazing, and the batteries are rechargeable. How long do they last? Oh, about a day. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's like a nightmare if you're going to be tagging thousands of assets. You, you said that uh, your, your tags can last years. Give me a bit of a sense of what the knobs and dials are, because there's no such thing as a free lunch. So uh, how, uh, how long, um, you know, what... What are the kind of service levels, response times, refresh rates that are going to give me um, these different uh, lifetimes for the batteries? Sure. Yeah, and it makes a great point. And so in that particular case where you're talking about a rechargeable one-day battery, that's likely the inverse of the system we've built, right? So where we're doing triangulation with timestamps of arrival, it's the opposite for that system. So they have basically a reader that's moving around and kind of tags that are on the wall. So it's kind of just a reverse of what's, what's happened. So 
our antennas are what require power and need to be charged every day. So we use a CR2032 coin cell battery, right? Um, on that CR2032, there, there are two different chirp rates on your tag. So there's an in-motion chirp rate, and then there's a not-in-motion chirp rate. Both are configurable, right? There are also the time to move from the active to the resting is also configurable, typically just 10 seconds or so. So to start your calculations, I have moving eight hours a day. So I'm in motion on, let's say, a singular shift, eight hours, and I'm chirping once a second while I'm in motion. My resting chirp rate is probably a factor of 10 slower than that. We last about a year and nine months in those conditions. So it's we've really put a lot of just standard blood, sweat, and tears engineering on limiting any power that's happening when the tag is asleep, right? So just if the tag is at rest, it needs to be as battery efficient as possible. So that's really where a lot of that work went into. There's really not a lot of tricks we pulled. Um, if you're chirping half of that rate, a third of that rate, a fourth of that rate, you're going to get up to, you know, beyond the shelf life of the CR2032 pretty quickly. Um, we do have the ability to chirp at 12 hertz. Um, it, most folks don't don't use that, but if you were, you, you have the ability to. Yeah, if you're trying. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Checking an athlete or uh, well, someone someone where that precision, then, then obviously you're gonna, presumably it's gonna be proportionate depending on the number of hours and uh, uh, th that you want to last. Are, are there any other variables? Is like does accuracy? If I want like super accurate, does that consume more battery or not? So there's there's no other kind of way to get more accuracy. Now, what you can do is if you, you can up your chirp rate and then filter those points, right? So that's a way to kind of artificially uh, get more accuracy. But our accuracy is really coming from the algorithms core of the system. So we don't, we don't have to artificially inflate the chirp rates to, to filter them down. There is a mode that is more battery consumptive, and that is to track in three dimensions. Right. So and that then has an additional more calls and responses to the tags right. uh, because you're doing more triangulation. And from that, you are more battery consumptive to okay. a factor of, of two to three X even more okay. consumptive. But yeah, I think uh, I mean, the, the, the default use case in manufacturing, in my mind, is you're tracking pallets. And in that case, pallets probably spend 99 percent of their time not moving. And so you guys are in very good shape for that. Um, 
What's Good. what are what are you tracking? Uh, you mentioned rats, Elaine. Uh, do, you, do you literally have a, one of those things around the neck of the rat, or is it? I'm assuming it's on the cage, so you don't actually have it as a big uh, fashion. Ex- no, it's on the rat. Okay. Yeah, on the rat. Yes, it's in a little backpack. It's very cute, actually. Oh, okay. Love this picture. <laughs> I'll have to send you. I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to share the picture, but it is. It is yeah. quite cute. It's a little backpack oh. that they 3D. They 3D printed it. Yeah. Amazing. Why would I want to know where a rat is to a high degree of precision? Or are you not allowed to talk about that? It's, you know, I, I can't talk directly as to exactly what they're doing, but it is a research study with a, a research university. So I'm sure it has something to do with their, their poking and prodding and seeing how that changes the behavior. Okay, so literally running along mazes and you want to know where they are in the maze. And these mazes are pretty fine grain. Uh, uh, we're talking about centimeter level accuracy for something like that. Fascinating. Yeah, for them, that's, for them that's possible because they can put four antennas really close in. It's all perfect line of sight. So, um, yeah, it works well in that case. Does the accuracy, how does the accuracy change with distance from the, uh, between the tag and the antenna? How does that work? It's, it's all a function of getting that signal to noise ratio. So with more distance comes more attenuation, which makes it more difficult to get proper signal over noise. So you do eventually are going to have a more difficult time hearing that signal. Um, it's, Really, the algorithms are designed to try to minimize that as much as possible. Um, So you shouldn't see much of a drop-off, but eventually, instead of seeing a decrease in accuracy, you'll start seeing missed reads where you're not getting any points at all um, in distance. And do you uh, do you have to sometimes like turn up the gain on the tag in order? So you, you, if I've got like if I'm in a big box retail store where the antennas might be way up then would I have to uh, turn up the, uh, the uh, transmission signal strength to deal with that or not? So uh, the FCC is very clear on the amount of power that's able to be put into Channel 4, Channel 5, and the other ultra-wideband bands. So you can't really up the gain any. Um, what's nice about our system is the re-ranges are, are pretty, pretty far. So if we're looking at a retail environment like a grocery store, if you were able to put the antennas in the rafters, say that's what, 40 feet, 50 feet, mm-hmm. um, you might be able to get away with something like a 100 foot grid of readers. Um, so that's one reader every 100 feet kind of in a grid. That depends on the shelf height, right? And what we're trying to get there is the signal out of those shelves and up into the rafters and the readers. So in an open line of sight outdoor condition, you can have a TOFTDOA system running at 200 foot distances, so you can have a wireless mesh Sports pretty, field pretty or far, far. Something like that. Yeah, and of course, I would never sell an instance like that. But you know, that's if you have kind of laboratory conditions outside, you can run it at those distances, if not much more. And for the geeks, uh, what what is the signal strength? Uh, how many dBs are you broadcasting at? Uh, do, do you have the I don't have okay. that offhand. Right. I could. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can get it for you, though. Okay. Well, uh, I don't think uh, it doesn't matter. So that's great. Um, so let's go back. And uh, so rats is one thing, but that's probably not your biggest market. What's uh, 
what 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 is the what are the trends that are driving consumption of your product? So really, we're for the most part, and, and I like how Logan likes to put it. We we we're really good at tracking large metal things. Like for example, the tools used to fix fighter jets. So um, you cannot have that wrench left in the wing. I think a B two went down once when that happened. Um, so we literally are able to track all those tools in real time. No, it's very difficult to track around a great giant hunk of metal like you know a jet, a jet airplane. Not to mention inside of it. So um, so we do. We we work on assembly lines um, and heavy manufacturing. Um, but we also have some other applications, and I'll let Logan talk a little more specifically about this because he's the one inside on, on these plants. He's, he's tested us everywhere from nuclear power plants, uh, where we actually work, believe it or not, even though we're RF, um, to, you know, I mean, we're, we, were in a, we were in a baseball stadium. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> excuse me, so um, we also have some... Uh, yard management solutions, tracking vehicles. Um, you know, we've done a lot of tracking of um, time motion studies, uh, people in postal type of packaging places. Um, so, Logan, why don't, you, why don't you give a few more specific examples of some of the things that you've set up, some of the places where you set this up. Sure. So and what they're doing. In terms of of market, um, you know, we don't really have the um, the luxury of being able to kind of pick and choose what markets we're going into. So we're kind of letting the market come to us, and we're kind of responding. And we do have a lot of interest, and we have pilots with, a, I believe, ten of the Fortune 100 companies. So it's getting there. It's exciting. Um, the main things that people track, the use cases that have come to us that we're pursuing, can fall into a few different categories. Um, one of them is people, right? And, and in tracking people to dive in there, it can be for a variety of reasons. Uh, mostly it's for time and motion purposes. So automating time and motion studies. You can now get quantifiable metrics on the way people move around machinery or on a shop floor and then rearrange and redesign processes to make them more efficient, right? Um, you'll see that we also with forklifts, but that's on people. We also enter a site where um, we're actually clocking in and clocking out and measuring time on and off a machine for people uh, um, and also able to mandate those breaks. So a little bit of a, kind of an Orwellian use case of tracking your workers in that sense, uh, but it is the, um, the union voted for it, um, so they're excited to have it as well because it does cuts both ways, right? You can mandate your breaks are 15 minutes long and that you're switching machines when you need to switch machines, right? Uh, we're well, also that's interesting. That is interesting. The, yeah, I'm fascinated by this progression that we're making from these manufacturing systems, which, yeah, they have robots, but basically people are still losing things to an environment where eventually everything is tracked. Every tool, person, uh, work in progress, Raw material, finished goods. So you know that's that's where we're headed, in my sure. mind. Um, but I think there's a ways to get there, and one of the challenges is this union thing. But actually, I, I've heard several, many examples where that actually has not been an obstacle because there's benefits in terms yeah. of safety, and uh, that's 
Yeah, really it wasn't in this case, um, but I have another. I have some other sites that are a little more tentative on, on doing such um, that we're in talks with currently. So, um, yeah, in this case, they they voted for it. They said, "Hey, this will help us mandate that breaks and help us mandate that time on machine is you're shifting. You know, you can't do a repetitive task for too long." So, so in this case, they they wanted to to have that data as well. So, that's fine. And, and it also, I think, is important to point out, they had a lot of other solutions that they that the unions looked at. And they really liked the fact that they did not have to give their employer access to their personal cell phones. Um, also, we are a very circumscribed solution. We're, we're you know, a micro-location mesh. So they had some say in, where is this mesh going to be set up? Uh, we don't want it set up in the bathrooms. We don't want it set up in the break rooms. And so literally they knew that when they left the perimeter of that mesh, there was no more tracking going on. They knew if they, even if they had their badge on and they walked outside the building or even outside their specific workspace, their specific grid, um, they were no longer being tracked. So they didn't have to worry about, you know, Big Brother tracking them outside the workplace. And they also had a lot of say in exactly, you know, the times and spaces where they would be tracked. And it was, in what sense is the wiser solution a mesh? Is it a mesh in that you've got kind of coverage of, uh, uh, of readers everywhere? Or are the signals being, is the information being relayed from one node to the other? So to go back to the, uh, my earlier point with wireless synchronization um, requires that it be a mesh, okay. right? So each antenna has to speak to the antennas around it to keep that synchronization. Okay, so the, the, the mesh is the, uh, the timing information, the synchronization information um, from, uh, from that perspective. It's not the, the tag readings that are being relayed. It's just kind of that coordination of what time is it and everyone has to have exactly that view of the time. Right. I think I see it. Um, okay, the, this is good. I, I just want to get some final comments on where you guys are on your, your journey. It sounds like you're well into production now. Um, uh, can you say a little bit on, on your size and uh, um, what, you know, where you see the, the, the market growth and opportunity? Any uh, comments there, Elaine? Yeah, no, absolutely. So yes, we still are relatively small. Um, we are right now about 13 people total. Mm -hmm. And um, although we are looking to hire, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're pretty much poised to enter a very rapid growth phase. Um, we do have very big customers and they take some time to you know conduct first their demos and then their pilot tests and then actually start to go plant by plant by plant. And so we're right on the cusp of, of start of moving in that direction. But we already have a couple of um, you know ERP customers who are actually scaling the solution. So so the the big challenge, of course, at the very beginning was can this thing scale? And that's what every other company was facing as well. And I believe we have a head start in that area. We can scale any number of tags, any number, any any size of facility, any number of floors that kind of thing. And so I think once we've really only been in the market for maybe two years with this, with our production solution. And so once the word gets out and it's just starting to 
I think uh, the sky's the limit. I think we're going to be really rapidly moving forward and growing very quickly. And what do you see in that ramp up time? I think for anyone that's starting up a business, and I know you've you've studied startups and entrepreneurship for a, a long time, that time to ramp is such a key element to the equation. Can you pass on a few uh, <laughs> pearls of wisdom of what you've learned in terms of how long it takes different companies to go through this prototype, proof of concept, pilot, production, ramp up? Well, I tell you, we are one of the slowest tortoises out there. I mean, from from the time I had this idea, and uh, we had a couple engineering teams that just didn't work out, they couldn't actually realize it, to the time I actually got my current uh, CTO with his, his just brilliant uh, ideas, I was able to get the funding for those. So we're really talking 20 11 was when we actually started mm-hmm. and but the issue is it's not just like we're making a little widget we actually had to make an entire system and not too many other folks were going at it from that direction most most of, of you know most of the others who are working in this world was like well what infrastructure already exists in these plants that we can you know tag onto but we realized that the existing infrastructure, the Wi-Fi systems that were out there, would not be able to do the Internet of Things in real time with tens of thousands of things if their communications data was also on those same networks. So we literally had to start from scratch. We had to develop an entire system, network, network protocols, hardware, software. It has been a, a very long journey. Um, to be able to do all that, but that's really what you have to do to get the performance that we were looking for. And so I've just been delighted how everything has worked out and how the, you know, how our early customers have been. Um, the feedback we're getting is really positive. We're, we're, we're really. I'm really proud of my team. <laughs> <laughs> and. and, and- what are you seeing in terms of the time it takes the customers to um, onboard this? You know, how long, what, what's like the typical timeline? Uh, you have some uh, innovation team from a major company and they say, we've looked at everyone, congratulations, we really love the demo, we've checked your references, we want to move forward. How long does it take the, these Fortune 500 companies to, to actually deploy and I, I and I know that a lot of this is actually nothing to do with you it's just the way they move but I'm I'm very are, interested in what yeah. you're seeing well we have one that still three years later hasn't really got themselves together <laughs> but then again we have another one um, that's just rolling us out in city after city and that was only about a year Logan wasn't it that they were uh, that's in the transit uh, sector what, you know, are, they, what really are they tracking scary. in the transit sector what does that mean yeah, so this is a this is a, an interesting use case, um, and not something we thought we would really get picked up in. And like I said earlier, there's we're kind of just hey, if you're going to track it, we're not going to complain. So they're actually putting tags on buses and trains, and so when the buses and trains come into the yard, they're tracked with GPS while they're driving around. But when they come into the yard, they're automatically discovered, and then they can automate washing, maintenance, and parking schedules and diagrams. So we can say, hey, as the bus comes in, hey, you need to go to parking space, you know, R-13, um, and he knows right where to go. So. Wonderful. 
Well, I, I could pick your brains forever. This is uh, really fascinating. Congratulations on that, this uh, journey, uh, Elaine and uh, Logan. And I wish you guys at Wiser Systems uh, all the best. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been great to talk to you. We appreciate it. Yeah, all right. thanks. I got to ask you guys uh, for three songs that you would be interested in taking to Mars. As there's two of you, I guess you get six. So, uh, uh, who would like to go first? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ask Elaine first because uh, she, she's had the most time to think about this. As I popped the question to her a few weeks ago when we first spoke. So, what are your favorite three songs, Elaine? So we're both musicians, just to just to let you know. Um, I would have to say something. I, I love so many different genres, so this is a really hard question for me. But um, something that would be like you know represent the achievements of humanity, maybe. So that would have to be like you know Beethoven's Fifth or some wonderful symphony. Okay, um, Beethoven's Fifth. That's a good. Something that would remind me of the planet, and so that would have to be bagpipes, of course. And maybe bagpipes and fiddles, which uh, would bring the family into it. My sister happens to be a very famous Scottish musician, so I would take anything of hers and have fiddles and bagpipes. Okay, what's her name? Bonnie Rideout. Bonnie Rideout, okay. Well, that, that, that's a great celebrity name. I can see the album <laughs> covers now. So is there a particular song of Bonnie Rideout that uh, you'd uh, choose? Probably rant because that's the pipes and the fiddles together, and yeah, she's a, she was America's uh, national Scottish fiddling champion. So she's uh, yeah, she has quite a few albums out there. And then finally, it would have to be rock and roll. I guess I guess I would have to pick something I could sing along. And there, there's only one song you can sing to and never get tired of, and that would have to be. The Bohemian Rhapsody. The other reason I picked that is because Logan and I sang that together <laughs> <laughs> at one of our trade shows. We had a karaoke booth next to us, and so we just had a blast, and that was something that we... <laughs> Fantastic. So you're both musicians. Have you, other than singing Bohemian Rhapsody uh, <laughs> at a trade show, have you done any other anything else musically together? Do you have, like, company uh, rock out things? No. Oh. That would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. No, no, we, we never have. No. And um, what instruments do you play? Piano for me, classical mostly. All right. And what about you, Logan? Uh, it, it's definitely my my biggest hobby out of work. So I play um, kind of in order of uh, my uh, ability. I guess would probably be saxophone, um, bass, and guitar and piano, um, a little bit of drums, and a few other things. But mostly kind of the, the stringed instruments and saxophone are kind of my main go-to. Wow. So are you one of these people that, like, makes music and records everything, you know, multi-tracks it and records everything yourself? I always thought I would be that person, but I am a social collaborator. Huh? So although I have the some of the technical ability to do that, I really don't feel as creative and motivated unless I'm playing with other people. So that is kind of a social thing for me. I, I, I saw Paul Simon uh, perform live and uh, 
was reminded that he, you know, when he records his albums, he plays everything. And then, but then you see him live and he has like the best musicians uh, on everything. And it's just an awesome thing. So, uh, so uh, what, what would be your three songs, Logan? Um, if I, if I, I I'm, I'm torn here because if I answer honestly, I'm probably going to throw out some very obscure pieces here. And so I, I, if people want to Google, that's fine. But this is gonna, so. I would say, in terms of my classical piece, um, Yo-Yo Ma, the cello player, has uh, the fifth movement of the Quartet for the End of Time. Uh, it's a very, very beautiful, haunting piece, where uh, essentially the the person that wrote it was in in a prison camp in Germany during World War II. Uh, I was a Jewish composer. And so he was taken in. And so he wrote it during that time frame for the only instruments that he had the ability to write for. So there was four instruments in the camp. And so he wrote for those four, and they actually performed it for the first time in that camp. And he lived, thankfully. It's a happy ending. Um, but that is just one of the most hauntingly beautiful pieces. Um, and so I, it, it struck me the first time I heard it, and I've kept it in my rotation ever since. So fifth movement from the quartet at the end of time would be my first piece. I have... a. A very uh, a, a weird penchant for Indian classical music. That's kind of out there, but it's very peaceful to me. I don't know why I like it. Um, so there's a, a certain uh, performer that plays the sitar that I like. His name's Nikhil Banerjee, and uh, he has a certain rag called uh, Billis County Toady that I like. So there's a certain recording there, which again, super obscure. I know no one's going to know what I'm talking about, but feel free to Google it. It's great music. Yeah, and yeah. Then, well, uh, we try and play it. So if we're if we're if we're lucky, people are hearing a fragment of that now. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's that one in particular is pretty foreign for the Western ear, but it's really really peaceful if you get used to it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, for the third, I'd probably do something from classic rock. I'd have to. Um, let's see. I probably like echoes from pink floyd or something one of their b-sides um i really like that so yeah that's off the cuff i didn't have a lot of time to prepare that answer but those are the ones that are stuck with me currently Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm listening to the Wall at the moment. Uh, I, uh, Mark Mark Maron as one of my favorite podcasters, and he's uh, has a recent interview with uh, one of the guitar players that uh, uh, that toured with Pink Floyd on the Wall tour, and so uh, I'm kind of going back in time there. Well, that's wonderful. I love uh, love hearing those great great uh, examples. Thanks thanks very much. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. 
Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 